If you don't have a Bible this morning, just raise your hand and someone will bring you one. But if we could open to the verse for the day. I didn't write down. Philippians 4, 2 through 3. Could you please stand? I entreat Iuda and I entreat Seteki to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, well, it's good to be with you this morning. Welcome to Sojourn. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. Man, it is always a joy to gather together this morning. Uh, Before I left the house this morning, uh, my middle son Isaac was <clears throat> sitting on the couch and my older son Owen said, oh, I gotta go change my clothes. It's time to go. And, uh, and Isaac said, hey, there's no school today. Like, why are you, why are you going to change your clothes? And, and he, I said, we're, it's sojourn. We're going to sojourn. He goes, sojourn? Man, it's a great day to learn about Jesus. <laughs> and I, I agree with him. So yeah, we're excited about learning about Jesus today, opening up his word together this morning and being able to grow in faithfulness and worship to him. So, so glad that we could all be here today, by God's grace, to spend this time together. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Jesus to bless our time in his word. Would you pray with me? God, we come before you this morning, and we're just grateful. We're grateful for the, the gift it is to be together. And, and we should give thanks for that every week. I pray that would never become something that just kind of passes and we don't acknowledge the reality, the gift it is to be a church family together. That today is a great day to learn about Jesus. And so God, I pray you'd help us to do just that. Would you help us to learn about Christ today? Would you help us to learn what it looks like to see our lives, every aspect of our life, our mind, our heart, our emotions, our will, everything of who we are to be conformed more and more to Christ. So God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would work in this time. That you, the God that is full of mercy and steadfast love, we pray, God, that your word would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Would you guide us this morning? And God, as we talk about a particular topic that can be challenging personally and corporately for us, God, I also pray that you would protect us. And I know that the enemy would want nothing more this morning than to distract us, that we would not pay attention, that we would not take to heart what your word teaches us. And so we pray, God, that you would crush his tactics and schemes. And ask, Holy Spirit, that you would implant your word in our hearts and minds, transform our lives because we're here, that we might walk in faithfulness in every part of our life. Fill us with your spirit, God, we pray. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I think all of us have different things in our lives that we contend to avoid. And it can be all kinds of different things. And it can be different reasons for the reason that we avoid different aspects of our life. Maybe it's just a distaste for something, the difficulty of whatever that thing is, or just the overall nature of it being uncomfortable. And the types of things, like I said, can vary greatly as well. Maybe some of these things will resonate with some of you. Some of us avoid exercise. We may know that we should exercise. People tell us that we should do that, but we just avoid doing it. Some of us avoid creating and sticking to a budget. We know, oh man, it's good to manage my money well, and I want to be a good steward of that, but we avoid it for 
a variety of reasons as well. Some of us avoid the doctor, the dentist. I won't ask when the last time some of you went to the dentist was. I know it's not my favorite place to go, but we can just avoid, oh, I don't really need to go do that. And for some of us, we avoid things like vegetables. I don't avoid all vegetables, but I definitely avoid okra and Brussels sprouts. I don't care what way or shape or form you cook those things in. I just don't like them. I know Brussels sprouts are like cool now, but whatever. But there's another area of our lives that I think at some point or some time, all of us have been tempted to avoid, or at least have a tendency to avoid in some way, in some shape, in some form, and that's conflict. We avoid conflict, and the reason for that can vary as well. Maybe just the general distaste for hard conversations, or because of the difficulty of navigating relational strife or disagreement, or just because conflict's painful, it can be uncomfortable. And I say this not because I just assume that's true for you, I say this because I've done that in my own life for those reasons. Now some of you are sitting here this morning, I'm sure, and thinking, well, not me, I don't avoid conflict. I'm all about conflict. That can be a good thing, or maybe you should consider why it is that you're often in conflict. But for you, maybe the challenge isn't so much avoiding conflict, but resolving conflict in a way that's honoring to God. And so as we come to our text today, just these two verses, we see the Apostle Paul addressing a very specific conflict in the Philippian church. And while the details of this conflict are specific to that particular group of people, the situation isn't unique. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And I'm trusting God that even in my imperfection of dealing with conflict in my own life and my inadequacy or limits in communicating about it, that God wants to do something in my life this morning. He wants to do something in your life this morning. That he wants to do something in our community. So whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus or not, whether you are tempted towards conflict avoidance or conflict creation, or you just don't know what or how you're supposed to actually resolve, really resolve conflict in a way that leads to personal growth and communal growth. No matter where you find yourself when it comes to conflict, I think there's something here for us all this morning. So let's open up to Philippians 4, and may God bless the preaching of his word this morning. We've been journeying through this, this short letter that Paul's written since September. We've been walking through this letter that Paul writes to this church in Philippi, and we've learned a lot along the way. We've been challenged to pursue Jesus with joy in the midst of a world that is calling us away from following Christ. That we'd have joy in the midst of following Jesus in a world that calls us and seeks to distract us from following Jesus. And so when we come to these two verses about these two women who are in conflict with one another, at first look, at first glance, it might seem a little disconnected from what Paul's been talking about so far. Let's look at these verses again. Paul writes, I entreat Yodia, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. But as we look at this text, I want us to see this morning, this isn't a random aside that Paul is writing here. It's connected. 
not only to the previous section of Scripture that we looked at last week where we talked about imitation and identity in Christ, but it's related to the letter as a whole. Remember, Paul is writing a specific letter to a specific group of people, and we sit here today some 2,000 years later studying it, reading it, but we don't do that for the sake of academics. We might have more knowledge in our heads. We do that because we believe that God's Word is living and active, inspired by the Holy Spirit, just as much as it was for that little church in Philippi as it is for a little church in Fairfax. Paul's been encouraging and challenging the Philippians He's been encouraging and challenging us to see that as we live life with Jesus, as we live life for Jesus, we don't do so as disconnected individuals. We do so in the context of community, a community that's been formed by the gospel, a community that's been shaped by the gospel, the good news of rescuing and reconciling grace. We need to remember that before Jesus sought you and saved you, you were a stranger with no hope, separated from God. But when you place your faith in Jesus, when you trust in Christ for who he is and what he's done, you are adopted into a family. You are made a part of God's family, a part of the church. And so what that means is, is to be a follower of Jesus necessitates that you're a part of a community of Jesus' followers. As we read through the New Testament, there is no indication that Paul ever had any concept of someone being connected to Jesus, but not connected to Jesus' people in the context of a local church. The reality is, when we come together as followers of Jesus, when we covenant with one another in community, we also come together as works in progress. Men and women saved from our sin, but men and women who still struggle with sin. Men and women who've been rescued from our self-focus and rescued from ourselves, but who still struggle with selfishness. Men and women who God has begun a good work in. And who God says he will bring that good work to completion. That he will finish what he started. Yet men and women who still currently have a lot of work to be done. To look more like our Savior. And so I say all of this for this important reason. Where community like this exists. Where God brings together a group of people like this. Conflict will creep up. And we see an example of that in these two verses. So an overarching truth that we can take away from this short section of Scripture, from this short letter, is that being in close community will lead to conflict. But conflict can and must be resolved in a Christ-honoring and Christ-like way. So what do we learn about the people in conflict in this particular situation? In these two short verses, we learn several things. We learn that this is about a conflict between two sisters in Christ. Two sisters whose names are written in the book of life. And so this isn't about conflict with the people out there, kind of out in the world or out in community. This is about conflict within this community, within the gathering of the church, among believers. And these aren't just two believers in the community. They are faithful members who have labored side by side with Paul in the advancement of the gospel. These women are influential in this community. They are leaders in the church. And I love that even as a side note that we learn something great here. We see that two of Paul's closest partners in the gospel are women. 
There's no discounting saying, well, this is something only men do to advance the gospel. No, Paul's saying, no, these ladies have labored aside beside me to advance the gospel. And so the same thing's still true for us today. We need strong men and strong women gifted by the Holy Spirit to advance the gospel and to do so together. The local church Paul's writing to in Philippi was probably not real big. And so you can imagine that as this letter is read aloud in front of the congregation, just like us, that as this letter is read, that all of a sudden he drops these two names that everybody in that room knew who those two ladies were, and everybody in that room knew what this conflict was about. It's a humbling thing. Now, Paul doesn't tell us exactly what the conflict is about, and I actually think by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that that's a gift to us. The vagueness of their conflict is a gift to us because that means you can't hide from it. (laughs) You can't say, well, my conflict isn't like their conflict, so I don't really have to listen this morning. No, there's a vagueness to this conflict, which means it's for all of us to learn from. But I think based on the context of the letter, the exhortations Paul has already given, we can at least assume this, that the basics of this conflict are tied to a life and a ministry together in community. There's no trivial personal matter that he's addressing here. This is a substantive issue about living out the reality of the gospel with one another. And Paul feels really strongly about these sisters reconciling to one another, resolving their issues with one another. He says he entreats both of them to agree in the Lord. He entreats them. That's such a strong word. It has the the idea of an earnest and an eager asking of someone to do something. And so this is not some passive request by Paul. It's not a matter of preference for Paul. He is not casual about conflict. He's pleading with them to reconcile to one another. Why? Why does it matter so much to Paul that just two women who are in conflict with one another should be reconciled so much so he cares so much about this that he's willing to write this in this letter. Well, again, we need to see that this personal exhortation, this entreaty to reconcile with one another flows out of the call to stand firm that we looked at last week. Let me read our part of our text from last week, just a few verses beforehand. Starting in verse 20, excuse me, of chapter 3, Paul writes, but our citizenship is in heaven, And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm. Thus in the Lord, my beloved, I entreat, sisters, be reconciled to one another. See, the the world we live in seeking to distract you. The enemy is seeking to destroy you. And our flesh constantly seeks to declare ourselves as the king and queen of our lives. Conflict is the result of those things being a reality in the world we live in. In the midst of the chaos and confusion of a broken world filled with broken relationships, Paul is calling Jesus' people. He's calling us to have an otherworldly unity. And he does this for two reasons. He does it for the health of the community and the health of our witness. 
See, we need to understand that conflict in community is rarely linear in its origins. It's rarely just about one or two people. It creeps up, but then it seeps out to infect and engulf the wider community. One person shares something with another person. Sides are taken via misinformation. Gossip starts, slander ensues, and things start to break down. Something I've always enjoyed in especially the fall season is to, to sit around a a campfire, to, to watch the flames of a fire kind of dance around. It's a mesmerizing thing. But fire, if not handled well, is dangerous and destructive. And we've seen that even over this last year in the massive wildfires in California. See, the amazing thing about fire is that a small ember, when it's stoked, and even just with a little bit of wind and, and, and enough oxygen and help of some, just some dry grass or sticks can turn into a blazing inferno in no time at all. You and I have an enemy whose goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. You and I have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Our enemy hates God. He hates God's image bearers. He hates the gathering of God's people who come together as a family. He wants nothing more than to malign the restorative work of God that he's doing in the midst of this community and to discredit the resurrecting power of his redeeming grace. So I think one of the most significant tactics that the enemy uses to seek to destroy the church is to stir up conflict and stoke the fires of disunity. He doesn't create that flame or ember. Jesus tells us out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So whatever's going on where that conflict is going to be brewing up within us, it starts within us, but he can take that small ember, take that small flame, and he can press and prod and blow on it, leading to engulfing flames. But let me be clear here. Conflict in and of itself isn't a bad thing, necessarily. From conflict, we can learn about ourselves. We can grow personally. We can gain a greater uh, self-awareness. We can also learn how to be in greater unity as we grow to understand one another. The problem is unresolved conflict. It's unresolved conflict that leads to growing disunity. And I would say that's one of the things that I worry most about for our church. Not that, they, that our church would be destroyed from outside influences, from attack from culture. We stand on the word of God. We preach faithfully the gospel and seek to apply it to our lives. What I worry most about our church when it comes to it being destroyed is that it would implode internally. And because we don't seek to resolve conflict, we aren't willing to love one another well and resolve conflict in a Christ-honoring way. And so there's the, the possibility of disunity, but there's another significant problem, and I think another reason that Paul writes this to the Philippians and to us. When there's unresolved conflict in the community and growing disunity that exists in a church, it can lead us to be distracted. They're distracted from what it is that God has called us to be and do. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has commanded and called us to go into all the world and make disciples of men, women, and children, teaching them who Christ is and what he's come to do and all of the things he's called us to to, to walk in, the life he's called us to, baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus has commissioned us to be ambassadors of reconciliation. 
He's called us to to go out as sent ones, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to go and be witnesses to the world, to the reality of redeeming grace and resurrecting power that we see in our own lives as we seek to follow the risen Christ. To be a witness is to testify to something, to, to give an account of what's happened. And the validity of our testimony and our witness is rooted in the credibility of the witness. Jesus dispatches us to testify that it's through him that we're able to not only be reconciled to God, but also to one another. But sometimes, instead of displaying this, instead of building one another up, encouraging one another, loving one another, we bite and devour each other, as Paul says in Galatians 5. And when we say that Jesus is Lord with our mouths, but then show something very different than how we live and how we love one another, the weight and worth of our witness becomes worthless. Brothers and sisters, this matters to Paul, and it matters to us because the credibility of the gospel is on the line. Jesus told us, the world will know you are my disciples The world will know that you are my followers. The world will know that you are people whose lives have been transformed and are being transformed by his grace, by how you love one another. And so one of the best ways that you can display your genuine Christ-like love for each other is not by avoiding conflict, but by resolving conflict in a way that says Jesus is real. And Jesus is worthy of all of our praise in the entirety of our lives and relationships. And so Paul's writing these two verses. He's writing them to a specific group of people in a specific church, but the same truth applies to us and should matter to us as well. So what do we do with that? What can we learn about resolving conflict from this text and the truths of Scripture? Well, first, I think it's important for us to understand the basics of why conflict creeps up in community. The short answer, sin. Right? We still wrestle and struggle with sin in our life, but let's unpack that a little bit more. Because though that's true, I think sometimes we can kind of keep that out there at this kind of uh, high level, but not actually think about how that applies to our own lives. So I think one of the most significant places and ways that conflict begins, starts to creep up in community and any relationship, is rooted in expectations. Expectations are obviously fine. We all have expectations about all kinds of things. But the problem happens and the possibility of conflict increases with what I like to call the expectation trifecta. You can write these down. I hope this will be helpful for you in your own life, whether it's in this church community or just any relationship. It starts with unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. That you have an expectation for something in relationship to someone else, and that expectation isn't met, and so you feel hurt by that. So conflict can begin. But if that unmet expectation also is an unvoiced expectation, then you've set yourself up for a lose-lose situation. Because you have an expectation of someone, but that person doesn't know that you have that expectation of them. And so you feel hurt or disappointed or sinned against, but you've never actually talked to them about the expectation you have. The third part of our trifecta 
It's unmet expectation, unvoiced expectation, and lastly, unreasonable expectations. If you have all three of those things working together, that you have an unreasonable expectation that you've never actually talked to someone about, then they're going to disappoint you time and time again, but they don't even know what it is they've disappointed you over. And if given the opportunity to know what that expectation was, they could tell you, I don't think that's actually a reasonable expectation. When all those things come together, conflict can begin. We can get upset. A lot of times that's because we've taken our preferences, rooted in those expectations, taken our preferences, and we turned them into laws because we can start to believe that we're the king or the queen of our own kingdom. And when someone doesn't meet our expectation, which we've turned into a law, we demand justice. Something must be done about this. And so conflict begins and conflict ensues. And so we see it creep up in our life and relationships. But we need to see that all conflict creeps up because of self-focus and selfish ambition. That in those moments when expectations aren't met, we can start to think that the world revolves around us. And that was likely the case for these two women. We see it in the lives of Jesus' 12 disciples when they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. We see it in our own lives. But before we move on, we also need to understand something. We need to recognize something that's true for every single person in this room, and that's that the greatest conflict that any of us have had or ever will have in our lives isn't with one another, it's with God. The Scripture says that because of our sin and our rebellion against God, we're not just separated from Him, we are at enmity with Him. And conflicts are almost always multifaceted that at least the two people in the conflict in some way have contributed to that conflict in some way. But with our conflict with God, it's all one-sided. It's just on us. We're the only ones who have done anything wrong. God is a good God. He's faithful and true, just and kind, full of mercy and grace. Yet we assert ourselves to say, I don't need you as the sovereign of my life. I'm good on my own. And so we rebel against God. We say, no, I'm going to establish my own kingdom over your kingdom. So conflict is created. But what did God do in the midst of that? God moved towards us. He moved towards us. He offered reconciliation to us. And he did so by sending his son into the brokenness to redeem us. Jesus took all of our sin, he took all of our shame, and he bore the full weight and the full penalty of all of it on the cross so that you and I could be forgiven and set free. See, we need to understand that reconciliation is available to any of us when we place our faith in Jesus and who he is and what he's done, and we repent. Repentance is about turning away from our rebellion. It's acknowledgement that we've done something wrong. And so true forgiveness can happen when both of those things are present. When faith in God and Christ and what he's done and repentance, when we actually say, God, I've rebelled against you. I don't deserve anything good from you. I'm desperate for your grace. And when that happens, Jesus washes away all of our sin. He washes away all of our sin and he radically transforms our lives. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that when you place your faith in Christ, that you become a new creation. It also tells us that when you place your faith in Christ, that God reorients your heart and your love, that you no longer love yourself primarily, 
but you love Christ above all. So what this means for us is the cure for your conflict in your life, any conflict in your life, the cure for any element of your brokenness is the good news of the gospel. We all need Jesus. So that means for you this morning, if you have been reconciled to God, you have received grace upon grace from Him, and so now you can give grace upon grace to those you're in relationship with. You have received unending mercy, so now you can give unending mercy. You have been forgiven fully and completely by God, and so now you can fully forgive those around you. See, friends, God shows us, He models for us how to resolve conflict. And when you recognize the greatness of God and what He's done for you, you can get through any difficulty you have with another person. It is by Christ, through Christ, and in Christ that we are able to resolve conflict in community to the glory of God and for the good of one another. And so with that foundation in mind, being rooted in the gospel, I want to give us three overarching principles for resolving conflict in community that I hope we can see from this text and apply to our lives. So again, maybe write these down. Take time this week to go back and reflect on them, to discuss them in community with one another. The first thing, first principle is this, identity in Christ. In these two short verses, Paul makes a very strong mention of the fact that these two sisters are just that. They're sisters in Christ. They have a common bond that is everlasting and eternal. They've both been adopted into the family of God. Names written, never to be erased from the book of life. It is who they are, rescued ones, reconciled ones. So when Paul says, agree in the Lord, he's calling them to be consistent with the gospel and their identity in Christ. Another translation of verse 2 says, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. So what that means is that their identity in Christ, their citizenship in heaven, compels them to reconciliation. The same is true for us. If this is our starting place and our foundation, then then we can begin to navigate the difficulty of relationships with one another when we remember who we are, when we remember who it is that we're in conflict, who they are. But it isn't always that simple. Which leads to our next principle, involvement of community. So identity in Christ and now involvement of community. These women haven't yet resolved their conflict or else Paul wouldn't be writing to them to encourage them to. And maybe they aren't even really interested or planning on resolving their conflict. And so Paul entreats them. He he cares enough about them. He cares enough about the health of the community and the health and effectiveness of their witness that he steps in. He gets involved. And then we see in verse 3 that he specifically calls the community to get involved. He asks, very particularly, he asks his true companion, who some commentators say is Luke, he asks him to help these women. See, the reality is we may recognize the need to work out our conflict. We recognize that conflict exists in our lives and in community, but sometimes for us it can be a lot like going to the gym. We know we need to exercise. We maybe even have purchased that gym membership, but when we show up, we just don't know what to do. So we need both commitment and some coaching to help us get in shape. 
The same thing is true for resolving conflict in community. We need the help of others. It's why we covenant and commit to one another. The community says to one another, we will help you work through difficulties. We will help you work through disagreements and remind you of your life in and with Christ. That can be messy. It often is. But mature brothers and sisters, mature brothers and sisters can provide godly wisdom and speak truth and love to help bring about reconciliation. And love is key in that. Paul is firm in his entreating them to reconcile and resolve their conflict, but he's gentle in doing so. As we saw in verse 1, he, he says multiple times, Brothers and sisters whom I love, who I longed for, my joy and crown stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Paul loves these people. He's not coming in as the heavy in the room to knock some heads together. No, he wants them to reconcile in a way that communicates the good news of the gospel. And so we have identity in Christ, the involvement of community. But perhaps the most important thing we can do to resolve conflict is to live out this third principle, which is the interest of others, considering the interests of others. And Paul has called us in Philippians chapter 2, that we looked at a few months ago, to do nothing, absolutely nothing, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than yourselves, looking not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Conflict is the opposite of that. It's the opposite of that. And so what does it look like practically when we feel conflict creeping up or, or boiling over in our lives? Well, we can start by asking ourselves some questions. If I feel hurt, if I feel offended, if I feel sinned against, let me just think through this and, and ask for wisdom from the Lord. Is there a clear sin that's taken place? Or is this a matter of preference or expectation? Where might I be placing my interest above someone else's that's causing this conflict? I encourage you to start by seeking to identify what's going on as best you can and to do so through prayer and to take ownership of your part. Where might have you contributed to this conflict? We also need to understand that emotions are always at play. Always at play. And while feelings are real, they're not always the best indicators of truth. See, sometimes we get angry before we gain understanding. You can strive to walk in humility and consider the interests of others by being slow to speak and slow to anger, quick to listen. I really think that so many conflicts could be resolved if we chose to be gentle and open to reason. If we assumed the best about someone, not the worst. If we were more about understanding than accusation and being right. Then, then at that point, with our motivation in the right place, we go to the person. This is so important. We go to the person. If you feel you're at conflict with another person, if you feel like someone has done something to hurt you, whether intentional or unintentional, I would guess that most of the time when we wake up in the morning, we don't wake up in the morning thinking, whose life could I mess up today? Right? I mean, if you do that, please ask for help. <laughs> I don't think most of us wake up in the morning with malice in our heart towards others. But sometimes we do malicious things. 
I don't think most of us wake up in the morning with a desire to step on someone's toes, literally or figuratively, but sometimes we do. So if you find yourself waking up and you feel at conflict, you feel at odds, or you're in a relationship with someone, you're just starting to think, maybe this isn't even intentional, but it's still an issue. I still have a hurt feeling. You have to go to that person, not to other people. Conflict often stirs up and provokes other sin. It can lead to gossip, slander, lying. I read something this week, gossip is not just a sin of the mouth, but also of the ears. If someone gossips to me about another person and I don't recognize it as such and I just take it in, I don't actually call them out on that and say, brother, sister, I don't think what you're saying is honoring to this person, then I'm just as much complicit in it. See, conflict snowballs when we are more willing to talk about a person than we are willing to talk to the person. Now, again, this doesn't mean that we don't seek guidance. Point two is involvement of community. But that guidance should be just that. It should be pursuing an older or wiser, a spirit-filled person who you're genuinely seeking counsel to on how to go talk to that person about the conflict you have. Who can help you to take the plank out of your own eye before you seek to go remove a speck from someone else's. Listen, in a Christ-formed, a Christ-shaped, a Christ-centered community, Conquering an opponent is not the goal of conflict. It's to be conformed more and more to the character and conduct of our Savior. And this has been true in my own life. At different points in different ways where I've been in conflict with others, I've seen conflict be ultimately a good thing for me. God has used it to expose false identities in my life. Things where I'm rooting my identity, finding my value, finding my worth, recognizing wrong expectations about other people or other things that are going on, and God's used that conflict to shine a light on that in my own heart, in my own life. As God's people, secure in Christ, secure in Christ, knowing who we are in Jesus, we should be able to share our hurt with one another, but to do so in humility, to be able to listen to criticism with a desire to grow, and then to be so patient with one another, in the process of change. All done in the context of love. A love that says, I am for you, brother. I am for you, sister, and I'm not going anywhere. See, do we recognize this about the Philippian church? They didn't have anywhere else to go. For these two ladies to be in conflict with one another, it wasn't like one of them could be like, see ya, I'm going to the church down the street. There was no church down the street. So Paul's saying, look, if we're going to be healthy together as a community, we have to work this out. Now, my guess is, some of you sitting here, hearing all of this and thinking, yeah, that sounds good. I've tried this. It hasn't worked out very well. That you've sought reconciliation. You've wanted to forgive or be forgiven but it hasn't worked out. Resolving conflict in community where true forgiveness and true reconciliation take place, it takes two to make it happen. And sometimes the other person or the other people are unwilling or wanting to seek reconciliation. So what do we do with that? What do we do with those moments? And we grieve. You can be legitimately sad 
over unresolved conflict. But we can also do what Paul tells us in Romans 12, that as much as it is up to you, you seek peace. That you can seek peace and offer that and be willing to seek reconciliation at the moment that person is also willing. And then you long for Jesus to come again and make all things new. See, the reality is this side of heaven, we don't always get this right. I haven't always gotten this right with conflict in my own life and and in ministry. And when I think about that, even this week, walking through this, it grieves my heart. It grieves my heart to think that there's been times and moments where I haven't resolved conflict in a way that's honoring to Christ. I'm so thankful that God's grace and mercy is new every morning. That even when I don't get it right, Jesus does. And that there's opportunity for me to continue to learn to continue to grow, to continue to handle things more faithfully the next time conflict creeps up, because it will. When I'm thankful for fellow pastor elders that I get to do life and ministry with, with men like Edward and Tom, that we're able to regularly both give godly encouragement and godly criticism. It's something we're committed to, is keeping short accounts with one another, not only as elders, but as a staff team as well, that There's been moments and times where I'm like, "Ah, I might have said something wrong or that person seems like they're put off by a comment or something and picking up the phone is, hey, are you okay? Did what I say hurt your feelings? Or even being willing to say, hey, I think something you said to me was hurtful and quickly seeking to resolve that. We have a community and a relationship with one another. We can be loving towards one another and patiently help each other be conformed more and more to Christ, to faithfully follow Jesus. Friends, conflict is often complex, and it can vary in degrees of significance and weight. It can be over the littlest expectation that hasn't been met, or the most intense and huge sin that could be leveled against us. But it is absolutely crucial that we stick together and work through it. Living out the principles of love and humility, holding one another accountable as well, to sinful behavior and actions, and to do so for the health of our community and the health of our witness to a watching world. Listen, conflict always provides opportunities. Always provides opportunities. Opportunities to glorify God. Opportunities to become more like Jesus. Opportunity to display the power of the gospel of grace, to resolve conflict in a way different than the way the rest of the world does. Paul is calling these women, he's calling the Philippian church to this opportunity, and he's calling us to the opportunity as well. So where might that opportunity be for you right now? May we be a community so marked by the grace of the gospel that when conflict creeps up, and it will, when it creeps up, that we would commit ourselves to resolving it in a way that glorifies our God and magnifies the worth of our Savior. And one of the things I love that we get to do every week as a church is take communion together as a church family because it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for you to be renewed and refreshed in the covenant promise God has made with you and made with us that through Jesus you are reconciled to God. But it's also an opportunity to renew and be refreshed in the commitment we've made to one another, that in Christ we have been and can be reconciled to one another. 
And so this morning, as you eat the bread, a picture of Christ's body broken for you, and as you drink the cup, a picture of Christ's blood shed for the forgiveness of your sin and selfishness, give thanks to God. Give thanks to God that he has reconciled you to himself and he's placed you in a community of grace. But let me also encourage you, if there's someone in this community right now who you know you are in conflict with, go to them this morning before you take communion. Go to them this morning before you take communion and tell him or her you want to work on reconciling with them. You want to work on resolving conflict with them. Just in the way we've talked about today. Let this time lead you to repentance and lead you to renewed faith. And for those of you that are not followers of Jesus, we're grateful God's brought you to gather with us this morning. But we just ask you not to come forward to take communion. Because right now, as I said earlier, the the biggest, most significant conflict in your life right now is that you haven't yet been reconciled to God. So I'd encourage you, if that's where you find yourself this morning, just hang out in your seat. But may this be an opportunity for you to seek that reconciliation. God gives it to you. He's willingly opening his arms and his life to you. That If you trust in Christ, that you could be reconciled to him. So today is the day to do that. There's no better time than now. So you can pray to God and ask him to save you and forgive you and then let somebody around you know about that so we can help you learn and know what it looks like to follow Jesus in this life. And for those of you that will come forward, you can come to the tables at the front or the back, tear off a piece of bread, take a cup to drink, and what Christ has done for you to reconcile you to God will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for this opportunity we've had to be together this morning. And God, we give you thanks that as we come and take communion now, that it's a reminder to us that you have moved towards us. You have moved towards us to reconcile us to yourself. You've done that through and by Christ who came to take on our sin and our shame, to provide an opportunity for us to turn away from sin, to acknowledge our sin and wrongdoing and rebellion so that we might be truly forgiven. And so, God, we rejoice in that. We give you thanks for that. But we pray also, God, that you would help us in light of that reality, in light of that truth, to heed Paul's words to these two women and apply them to our own life. God, would you help us to be a community that resolves conflict in a way that speaks to the value and the worth and the greatness of your grace we have in Christ. But, God, we need your help. We're we're not always good at this. So we pray and ask Holy Spirit that you'd give us wisdom and guidance, that you'd help us to do these three three things, to remember our identity in Christ, to ask for the involvement of community for help, and to really and truly consider the interests of others. Holy Spirit, would you help us to be faithful? Would you help us to have a healthy, thriving community, and because of that, a healthy witness to the watching world? We give you thanks for your patience and kindness with us. Help us to be patient and kind to one another. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Come forward whenever you're ready.